Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and things. Now, today's guest is uh, author Alec Leach, and my interest in him came from the book he has written. We'll get into that, but first, Alec, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Sure. Um, my name's Alec Leach. I, I grew up in the south of England, uh, but I live in Berlin now. What is it you do? Um, so I moved to Berlin in 2014 to work as an editor at Heisman Biety. Um, and then since then I left in 2018 and started working in and around the sustainable end of the fashion industry while still keeping like my, my network and my POV, I guess, from what I was doing at High Snob. Um, and yeah, I published my book earlier this year. Uh, it's gone really well. And I don't know, I probably spent half of last year working on it. And uh, it's been out for, I think, since March. Going to get back to the sustainable side of things. But what really interests me, first of all, is high snobiety. Now, I think many of my listeners will probably be entirely and happily unaware of what that is, but could you give us some info on that? It's a, it's a streetwear magazine um, or website publication. Um, you know, it's it's changed a lot in scope over the years. When, when I joined, it was very much still a blog, and there was maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 people working for it worldwide, um, and then... You know, over the years, it grew and grew and grew. I think it was about 200 people by the time I left. And it actually just recently got sold to Zalando, the giant um, e-commerce platform in, um, you know, Zalando is like a massive, massive, massive German version of ASOS. It's one of the biggest e-commerce uh, companies in Europe, I think. Um, and they, they bought High Society a few months ago. Um, but yeah, it's basically a streetwear publication uh, you know when i started it was all kanye uh asap rocky supreme rare nikes and that's kind of still what it is today that's kind of the uh that's uh, what it's all about so streetwear is quite different from most other aspects of the garment industry i believe yeah i mean you know probably a lot of the stuff that we, we would also cover a lot of more conventional menswear stuff as well like you know, we'd still, maybe every now and then, we'd still feature something from, I don't know, YMC or Norse Projects or something like that. Um, but, yeah, it's, you know, streetwear is its own thing and it has its own, it's a whole world unto itself. I'm sure everybody knows about all the hype and the resale culture and the limited edition runs and the drops and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's been a pretty inescapable part of the the menswear, I guess, conversation in the last 10 years or so. Um, you know, the, the reason sneakers and collaborations and um, drops are so popular right now is basically because of the streetwear scene and because... I think brands in the streetwear space kind of figured out a way of selling clothes that was actually smarter than the conventional way of doing it. I'd love to hear more detail about this. Now, I have read the book, so <laughs> I know <laughs> what it is about, but you're talking about the collaborations, the drops, the limited editions, the building up of the hype. Mm. Um, 
creating a uh, desire among people. Yeah, I mean, everyone wants something that's better than what everyone else has, right? That's like the, I guess that's the kind of urge that streetwear is really good at exploiting. You know, the idea of something being limited edition just means that, you know, everyone has the opportunity to get something that nobody else has. And because nobody else has it, that makes it better. Therefore, that makes it more valuable. Therefore, the brands that sell the things everybody wants can, you know, have much more loyal customers and can, you know, over over a long over a long amount of time, kind of paradoxically, you can sell much more stuff if you keep stuff limited. That's kind of the that's kind of the idea underpinning a lot of the conventional streetwear, I guess, um, toolkit or um, you know the instruction manual for how to create hype. I guess really, it's a fake scarcity because you want people to be clamouring for it. Yeah, in in the same way that the contemporary luxury industry works as well. Like that's that's all built on you know a sort of um, illusion of things being valuable purely because they're just out of reach. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the kind of, you know, when we talk about the contemporary streetwear scene, we really talk about the scene of Supreme and everybody else that came after Supreme. Um, obviously, there were, there were there were a lot of streetwear brands before Supreme, but Supreme was the, were the guys who really kind of made it into what it is today, where you have weekly drops, tons of collaborations, um, a huge amount of hype, um, a sort of thriving resale scene. Um, Supreme really kind of um, wrote the book on that, so to speak, and yeah, it's just um, like I said, it's a world unto itself. It's very, it's very youth culture driven, you know. Like I'm, I'm 34 now, and I'm very much like old by streetwear standards, and I don't, I don't really, I'm not in touch with what's hot in the scene anymore. I don't know what what sneakers are hot right now. I don't know what brands are really hot right now. I mean, I, I sort of keep up to date just through Instagram, and you know reading reading up on um i don't know fashion publications what's going on but i'm not super plugged into it in the same way that i, I was when i was working at high society i definitely don't dress that way um either does that bother you at all that you've sort of aged out of the scene no i wasn't so much into it in the first place i mean there was definitely a time when i really when I mean, Supreme had such a huge collection that um, there was kind of something for everyone in there at one point. Um, and there was definitely parts of the Supreme collection that would get me really excited and um, that I'd be really, really into. But, you know, m more or less, most of what was happening in the scene, I wasn't especially interested in, um, especially on the, the sneaker end of things. I never had a particular, never had a particular passion for sneakers. Um, that wasn't like a real huge kind of motivator for me. So, um, you know, as, as the years went on, I, it became more and more of a professional interest rather than a personal interest, I guess. Looking back, do you have any thoughts around the excitement that you felt at the time? Was it real or was it... Yeah, sure. You, I mean... Do you think now you might have been manipulated? No, I mean, there was some cool stuff there. I mean, you know, I, in the same way that someone like Our Legacy right now is you know, a really exciting brand um, for me and for a lot of people I know, you know, there was a lot of really cool stuff happening in streetwear and there still is cool stuff happening in streetwear. Um, you know, it's just, I, you know, a lot of it's, it comes down to stuff just like having an interesting silhouette or a really great fabric or, um, you know, 
at the moment, I, I really like stuff that's a bit slouchy and a bit maybe sheer and a bit kind of um, transparent. Not, not not completely transparent, but like a bit a bit sheer and definitely very slouchy. And you, you wouldn't be able to get that in streetwear just because the kind of the way brands are set up isn't really it's not really about producing an interesting ready-to-wear piece. It's about basically a slightly different graphic T-shirt or slightly different um, trouser or a slightly different jacket. I mean, having said that, there was always you know, brands would still be doing a full collection, like someone like Palace or, um, I don't know, I guess a newer example would be Braindead or um, Stussy is another classic example. You know, they would always be doing knitwear and outerwear and accessories. You know, they would have a full head-to-toe look. But, um, I don't know, I just, especially as while I was also covering the streetwear scene, I was also going going to Fashion Week and also, you know, I don't know, Sitting through Margiela shows or Andrew Mulamista shows or Dries van Norton shows, you know, I I definitely developed a much more kind of, I guess, kind of eclectic or um, maybe not eclectic is the right word, but a, a bit more of a kind of elevated taste. Even if my uh, even if my wallet wasn't exactly able to um, to kind of buy the stuff that I was into, but um, you know, n- nowadays like I'm either into either into I don't know, secondhand leather and boots and um, tailoring, or it's like something that's maybe a bit interesting or a bit quirky, and neither of those things I can really get from the streetwear scene. You think Casalando buying High Snobiety is kind of a, an obvious match? You have the, the hype man and the, the seller, the dealer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a weird, it's a bit of a weird thing on the surface because so much of High Snobiety's um, kind of brand recognition is in the US, and Zalando doesn't sell in the US. Um, but I think, I mean, you know, I can only make a guess that a lot of it was about the talent at Heist and Bioty. Zalando does a lot of agency work. They have a lot of, um, they have a really huge creative team. And um, I would imagine, you know, Heist and Bioty also has a very large agency side to the business as well. So I would imagine there was something to do with that. Your job in Heist and Bioty was basically writing promotional articles, reviews? Yeah, um, reviewing collections. Um, I mean, at first it was basically like 15, 20 stories a day about a new Nike shoe or um, a piece of furniture or a motorbike or a new Bape collection or a new undefeated collaboration or um, a pair of fans that were somehow limited edition or, um, you know, it was very bloggy. Like you would do a ton of posts in... um, in pretty quick succession. Um, and then over the years, that evolved into more kind of um, runway coverage, um, trend reports, interviews with designers. Uh, you know, it definitely got a lot more elevated and a lot more like a conventional fashion magazine over the years. And so, yeah, I mean, I was at a team. Um, I had people working under me. I had people that, you know, I'd work with. Um, yeah, it was, it was everything. YouTube documentaries, looking over the social media coverage, um, figuring out what brands we want to feature at Fashion Week, uh, interviewing people, new designer reports, tons of stuff. I'm very curious about what the business model was at House Nobiety. Was it advertising or, yeah. or paid features? Yeah, same as same as any other publication. Um, you know, when I started, it was very much advertising, and it kind of moved a bit more onto advertising and paid content. And, um, you know, what's really profitable, I think, what's one of the most profitable parts of fashion publisher um, businesses right now is, is the agencies. So they all, they all essentially function as creative agencies now. 
so they'll be producing the they'll be they'll be producing the campaigns that they also run or they'll be producing campaigns that other people run and they don't run um it's all become very it's all a um there's not really any borders between anything anymore. There's nothing to say that a magazine can't also be an agency or that an agency can't have a magazine or that a brand can't have a magazine or, you know, it's all pretty blurry these days. So does that cause any problems sort of ethically between what is advertising and what is <laughs> featured content? And I mean, if, if you had, if, if somebody paid for the content, you'd have to say, you know, there's pretty strict laws about that in the EU. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of stuff where it's like, okay, this brand X or brand Y is like a big, is a big partner. So, um, you know, we need to make sure that we give them more. We need to make sure we cover their show in Paris, or we need to make sure we cover their new sneaker or whatever. Like, that's all. Um, that's all pretty common, common stuff uh, for fashion magazines for sure. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, if something was paid for, you you know, you're legally obliged to disclose that it was paid for for sure. Is that always done? Do you think, or is it sort of a bit? Yeah, dry? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's. It, I think it's. Um, okay. Yeah, I think it's pretty pretty clean cut these days. It has to be in the EU, anyway. So around two thousand and eighteen, you had a bit of a change of mind and decided to get out. Um, yeah, I mean, it just came to the point where I thought it was time to move on. Uh, I'd been there for nearly five years, and I just wanted to do something new and I wanted to do something for myself and I didn't really want to work for anybody else um, so I was like I'm going to go freelance but then ju- just from commissioning other writers when I was running the when I was running the fashion content on High Society it was like you can kind of see that it's a real like it's a pretty uphill struggle for if you're just a freelance writer and you don't have a specific um niche or a specific issue that you focus on and so I thought well I'd already been researching sustainability quite a lot of the time and it felt like an issue that was only going to get more and more important and um, so I thought okay why don't I just go into this this feels like um, you know I mean it's kind of strange to say it given the state of the climate but like sustainability is like a growth industry is something that is going to be more and more important over the years um, and I think it's going to become more and more of a kind of, it's going to become essential to have a, an understanding of what sustainability is and how it works. So, um, it, it was really about like, okay, what, what can I do that's going to be good for me? And there's also going to have like, have an impact because it's also, you know, after five years of basically regurgitating press releases and talking about products or brands, you get a bit kind of. I guess morally kind of exhausted as well and you start to think about how you could do things that align a bit more with your values and um, you know that was a big that was a big uh, driver I guess behind doing what I do I'm always interested to, interested to hear what people's take on sustainability is I mean how, how do you define it because there seems to be so many different uh, versions of it these days yeah, I mean, in, in my book, I sort of make the distinction between sustainability and sustainability TM, like with a little trademark logo. Um, you know, most of what we see in the sustainability sector is really designed to make shopping seem less problematic than it really is. Um, it's especially true with kind of the big headlines that you see, like such and such a brand is 
doing such and such a commitment or such and such a brand is investing in this technology or such and such a brand is working with this person as a, you know, um, I can't remember which Kardashian, one of the Kardashians is now a um, star sustainability ambassador for Boohoo, I think it is. You know, like a lot of this stuff is really is really about brands being able to engage with sustainability because it's seen as an important issue. It's not about them um, reducing their impact on the planet, um, which is the sad state of affairs at the moment. But, um, you know, real sustainability is when brands look at their supply chain and think, okay, how can we reduce the impact of this? What, What steps can we do to make sure that this is less harmful to the planet? That's what sustainability should be. But these days, it's mainly marketing teams engaging with people's fears for the future, which is, you know, which is why so much of it is based around a capsule collection or a collaboration or some new technology that doesn't work right now or a commitment uh, 10 years time down the road. It's all it's all stuff that you can do without having to change business as usual. And it's all stuff that you can do that very neatly kind of plugs into the news cycle you know everyone loves to hear about a collaboration everybody loves to hear about like some new commitment or some pledge or whatever like it's all it's all um most of the time it's about brands being able to engage in sustainability as they would engage in any other issue that is seen to be important for their customers lives really just adding a hashtag to their social media posts yeah you know it Obviously, that's a pretty simplistic way of putting it, but it, it's, it, yeah, sadly, a lot of the time it is that. Mm. You uh, you mentioned in the book uh, Mulberry's campaign, uh, which was about <laughs> how a handbag can save the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, some of this stuff is so stupid, it's embarrassing. Like, it, it's truly, you know, it, it just goes to show just how... Um, just how sh- shallow and cynical a lot of this stuff is, is that you have this really enormous, um, enormous brand essentially thinking that its consumers are stupid. Like, I don't think anybody reads that headline, you know, can a handbag save the world? Question mark. I don't think anybody, anybody that I know that sees that feels a bit patronized and thinks this is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, it just goes to show that so much of the time this stuff is kind of con- conceived of by marketing teams rather than by anyone with, with an actual um, with an actual um, sustainability kind of perspective. It, it really is just marketing people so much of the time. I, obviously, I can't say specifically about that mobile campaign, but it was fucking stupid. Um, I don't know. I know, you know, I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of that company or who did it or whatever, but it's truly absurd. Clever though, because when I was preparing for this, and I picked up the book, and I noticed it, and I thought I'll Google that. So I, I saw the campaign, and before watching the video, I thought, "What well, handbag saved the world? Now, how stupid is that?" And then I saw the video with sort of no preconceptions, and I thought, "Wow, that's pretty clever. That is a really nice video they've made." And if you don't start thinking about it, you might just, oh, yes, uh, I mean, that farmer was really genuine about how he moved mm. his cattle around and whatever. Yeah. And people looking at the leathers and all this, and yeah, I mean, they'll take your handbag back and fix it and sell it to someone else. I mean, it did all seem very genuine. But of course, can a handbag save the world? Really? You know, the the, the reason the um the kind of most difficult thing to kind of get your head around with greenwashing is that it, it really functions by either distracting or appealing to emotions or by hiding things between the lines. So, you know, like 
you know, you can have some really like emotional music or you can, you know, have someone like, as you said, you know, you can have like a re premium video where there's a very nice farmer talking about like how he feeds his cows or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can kind of have that and it gets the message across that, Oh, these people care about the environment. You know, that that's like enough. Um, but you have to have a bit of a kind of nuanced understanding of how this all works sadly in order to be able to tell who's, um, who's bullshitting and who isn't. And, um, you know, the, the, the biggest question that it always comes down to is like, how are they concretely reducing their impact on the planet? Like what are they doing now and what they're doing tomorrow and what they're doing next year to reduce their impact on the planet? And, um, the reason that that mulberry thing is such a great example of, of greenwashing is that w- when you sort of dig into it, there's no, there's very little in the way of concrete, actionable, um, you know, backed up with numbers, evidence of what that brand is doing to reduce its impact on the planet. It's all like, well, we're aiming for our supply chain to be different in like 10 years time. But they don't say how it's going to be different. They don't put any numbers on how that will reduce its impact on the planet etc etc it's all um you know it all kind of it's really a house of cards you know it's like greenwashing as a whole is basically brands foregoing difficult questions in the here and now just to sort of keep things going for a few more years and people don't think that maybe it's all going to come crashing down at some point because right now us you know us being like the the consumers in like the major fashion market, like none of us have actually felt the effects of climate change. And when that starts to happen, it could very easily, I, I don't see how people are going to put up with greenwashing anymore or how people are going to just accept like, oh yeah, I get it. Your CEO says he, he's committed to a sustainable future. Well, I can't go on holiday anymore or I can't, I, my showers are rationed now or oh, the forest just down the road from me is on fire constantly or I can't buy, I don't know, I can't buy peanut butter in the supermarket. You know, like all, all these kinds of impacts that are sort of somewhat inevitable with the climate emergency, as soon as they start to really be felt by people that spend large amounts of money on fashion, suddenly this entire house of cards uh, looks very precarious. I did notice that Mulberry put the important bits right at the start of the video, so you'd have the rest of the video to sort of lighten the mood again. Right at the start, they say they intend to be carbon neutral by 2035. Now, of mm. course, that is way far in the distance. And also, become carbon neutral is actually, I think, impossible for a company that manufactures stuff without yeah, resorting mean, to buying carbon offsets, which is exactly, a scam in exactly. itself. Yeah, exactly. Like Offsets are hugely problematic. And, and a lot of the time, even then, a lot of the time, what's really happening is that a brand will... Um, will claim to be carbon neutral in certain parts of its business and not the whole business. So like a really common phrase that you see is um, carbon neutral in operations. Um, I think Shell or Exxon, that was definitely one of the big oil companies that was claiming to be carbon neutral in their operations. And when you're carbon neutral in your operations, it sounds really really impressive because you think, oh, this company is going to be entirely carbon neutral because it's across all of its operations. But the, the way things work these days is that, you know, companies that sell things, they don't actually make it themselves most of the time. They have a, a big chain of suppliers underneath them. And this is something I talk a lot about in the book where fashion brands don't actually make their own clothes. They pay other companies to make the clothes for them. 
And so when you say you're carbon neutral across your operations, it really means carbon neutral in your store, in your warehouse, in your um, headquarters, like all of the things that the brand actually owns, which just so happen to have a tiny carbon footprint. So, you know, you could you could literally be talking about carbon being carbon neutral across like 2% of your business's carbon footprint. It's, um, you know, it's, it's really disingenuous. And um, sadly, there's just, that's kind of how, it's really hard to explain that, or it's really hard, you can't kind of make that, it's, it's, or we're just start, starting to figure out now how to kind of be able to shine a, shine a light on how disingenuous that is because it's kind of, it's a really big deal. It's kind of a fundamental lack of honesty because if you were making statements like that, people do expect you to include your entire business mm. as in how a consumer would understand it. Yeah, and it sounds like you are saying that because you're saying across our operations, but... Um, Operations is basically um, sustainability, kind of technical speak for the less least impactful parts of the business. Um, it just it just happens to sound like the whole thing. Could just be an office in East London. Exactly. Exactly. People. Exactly. Exactly. That's kind of the um, that's how it works, especially in fashion. Like the sort of fashion supply chains are really, really long and really sort of tangled and they'd have loads of different companies performing loads of different processes and a lot of the time they don't know each other, they're not in touch with each other. It's really, really messy. And a lot of the time the brand sitting on the top of it is a pretty small group of people and they you know, that group of people doesn't really have a very significant carbon footprint at all. But um but because you don't see the supply chain because it's on the other side of the world, it's very easy to think that the biggest source of of um, carbon emissions or whatever is the thing that we see in front of our eyes, like the plastic packaging or the DHL truck in the in the road, or you know something being flown by airmail to be delivered to you. You know th- these are all really, really, really insignificant impacts. It all, always comes down to the impact of actually making the product in the first place. But because we don't see that the product is made somewhere, we don't see how damaging that is. We um, we uh, it's very easy to be kind of misled because we're so um, disconnected from how things are really made. Because the, the actual making of things is wildly more complex than most of us imagine from the very start to the end. You know, people talk a lot, a lot of the time about like, oh, so brands flew these influencers and celebrities all over the world to, I don't know, Hawaii to like shoot this campaign. Isn't that so unsustainable and so polluting? But that, that that's like completely negligible. Like it's it's not even moving the needle on the overall carbon footprint of a large scale fashion brand. It always comes down to the clothes that are being made, which again is one of the reasons that um, you know there was a lot of reasons I decided to have the message of the book being buy less. But um, it really comes down to that. Um, it's 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 the, if you want to reduce your impact as a consumer, you just need to buy less stuff because the the biggest impact of the fashion industry is always buying new things. It's producing new things that we buy. Because buying less is entirely unsustainable for the industry as a whole. I mean, it depends which parts of the industry. You know, someone, you know, like if you if you think of the, the industry as like one giant, giant, um, you know, pie, like less people going to H&M means that there's potentially more people going to somebody like, I don't know, Norse Projects or... Um, I don't know what other brands your listeners are into, YMC or, um, 
you know, these kinds of guys that make stuff that's a lot more expensive, but um, last a lot, last a long time, and it's really made to um, be worn for a long time. Like, sure, it's bad news for fast fashion, and it's bad news for like really large scale, mass produced fashion, but it could be good news for the brands that do genuinely make really well made products. I've been wondering about that whether the fact that we buy lots and lots of cheap clothes. Is that because we want lots and lots of cheap clothes, or is it just because they are there, we can buy them, and that sort of becomes an interest? But if we didn't have that avenue, that outlet for our time and energy, we might get into something completely different. I mean, not woodworking necessarily, yeah. but uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's just a sort of hobby. We might go to the cinema more. Mm, I mean, we just live such visual lives. I think especially these days, like, think about smartphones and i think when you live in a city like i do it's very you spend so much time looking at people because you're surrounded by so many people um and especially when you know you multiply that by 100 with all the people that you know in your smartphone um it's yeah i think i think it's just the fashion's just the sort of first thing that you notice about somebody and um i think especially now that kind of the music industry has kind of you know, when I when I was a teenager, like I didn't really care so much about what clothes you wore. It was more about like what music you're into, and um, and I think now that's kind of been replaced by what clothes you wear. And um, you know, obviously the fashion industry has just become cheaper and cheaper and quicker and quicker, and it's just so much easier to scratch that itch. Like when I when I was a kid, I didn't, I really, I mean, I might have had a choice, but I didn't feel like I had a choice in what I was buying. It was basically like. You go to Top Man, which was the um, the male version of Topshop, um, to buy like your skinny jeans and you know whatever else. Or you go to like Primark or H and M, but that was kind of boring. And then you would just buy like a band tee, and then like a band hoodie or a band you know long sleeve or whatever. Like it, I never really felt like I had that much to choose from because I didn't really have that much money. I guess the only thing you could really choose from was like, are you going to wear Nikes or are you going to wear Vans or are you going to wear like. You know, I used to wear like Fred Perry versions of of bands, uh, like the sort of plimsolls with the little Fred Perry crest embroidered on them. I would wear them all the time, and then just like wear them out in like six months, and then just buy another pair. And that'd be the only pair of shoes that I wore. Um, whereas, whereas I feel like now it's a lot more like there's a lot more choice, just because you know fast fashion has just become so diverse now. If you think all of those brands in the H and M portfolio, I know not all of them are. are so cheap but like you can go somewhere like weekday or mango or um you know one of those places and like it's it's what top shop used to be and it's what top man used to be but it feels like there's a lot more variety or at least like i don't know yeah it's, it's odd though because i can relate to what you were saying about music being more important i'm a bit older than you but when i was younger it was your bag of records that really said a lot about who you were mm not what you were wearing so much because you bought one pair of jeans and one pair of sneakers yeah. year, and you wore them. Like, I, like I, I, I sometimes think, like, what jackets did I wear? Like, I don't know. I remember there was just, you know, men, I think men, I, I personally feel like menswear is really kind of, it's like, um, I feel like menswear is categorically better now than it was when I was a kid, when I was younger. Like, I feel like it's on sort of like a weird kind of journey of just, getting better in terms of the aesthetic and the sort of variety in the aesthetics that people are able to choose from now. But 
I remember at the time it was like you could buy like a Nike jacket or an Adidas jacket for when it rains. You know, I grew up, I grew up in England, so it, it never got that cold um, in the south. And it was like, well, you just have like a few band hoodies or like, a, you know, some cheap like acrylic wool jumper and then like a Nike jacket to go over it and then some skinny jeans and some vans or some Nikes or whatever. And then kind of that was all that you could really do. Whereas now, I think, you know, you can go into somewhere like weekday and there's actually quite a lot of variety in there, it feels like. I think the internet has changed things a lot there in that we are exposed to so many more things, but we also have infinite ways to buy stuff. Mm. I mean, now it's sort of become uh, normalized to buy stuff direct from Japan, which it wasn't even 10 years ago, Yeah, let alone before that. And even knowing about all this stuff. Yeah, sadly, nothing in Japan will ever fit me. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, you know, like, I, I remember, you know, I remember when, when I was maybe like 18 to like 24, 25, it was basically like the, the skinny jeans, indie rock kind of like era. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't give a shit about like the strokes or the killers or whatever. Um, but like, that, it felt like that look was kind of the only thing that you could really buy. Uh, maybe I was just not looking in the right places. I don't know. But um, it felt like that was kind of all there was. And, yeah, now it's like people are wearing all sorts of stuff. Like, you know, you see kids these days and it's like there's there's just so much more variety um, in a way that there wasn't, I think, when I was younger. And, you know, like, like I said, the some of the the quality of the menswear on offer right now is, I, I know obviously something like the heritage stuff, like, or even like the classic menswear stuff, like APC or whatever, obviously that's been going for a really long time, but I'm, I'm not really into that. I don't really like that aesthetic. It doesn't really do much for me. And now there's like actual options I can choose from, you know, like, because I, I can't afford Margiela. I'm, I, I'm never going to be dropping like Margiela money or anything, but like, if you're into that look, you can, or, you know, just secondhand is so good right now. There's all these resale platforms where you can find that kind of stuff. And then obviously there's vintage stuff that you can pick from. There's just so much more choice that, um, you know, it's sort of, you know, given how critical I am of like the fashion industry at scale, it does feel like right now there's just menswear having like a really good like moment. And I think guys are really open to experimenting with, newer ideas rather than the, you know, you're either a sneakerhead or you're wearing raw denim and red wings. You know, it, it feels like there's a lot more variety now if you're into decent clothing. I think you've got a good point there. Uh, what I also see is that the fashion cycles are going so quickly that there's such a change all the time in what is fashion, but at the same time you've got all the subcultures which are really strong. Mm. So things are all over the place and you see the kids uh, this week they're into punk and you think wow it's 2022 mm -hmm. trying to look like a 1980 punk yeah <laughs> well, yeah that's uh, that's great yeah or, or like the whole like weird, this emo revival that i'm finding extremely confusing because i thought that was I, thought that was terrible when it actually happened i i don't think you know it's you know when, when you think about like people i don't know the the, the punk thing or like people dressing like like the grunge look or whatever like you know, like Nirvana was sick at the time. Like Nirvana was like, that was an amazing band. Or like, you know, 
I don't know, the Sex Pistols or, no, or you know, any of that punk stuff or, you know, you see guys dressing like metalheads now and, you know, Slayer was amazing back in the day. Like, that was all really genuine, really great youth cultures. But, like, being around at the time of My Chemical Romance, it was like, I didn't think that wasn't, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm just being, um, being, um, I don't know, looking down my nose and it all, but they didn't feel like it was an especially kind of, it was like the last, I know emo was like the last real subculture, but like, I truly don't understand why people want to look like they're in my chemical romance. Cause I was around at the time and it was kind of shit. <laughs> like, it wasn't cool. It wasn't good. I mean, you might've been too old even then. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I was like 16 at the time, but yeah, apparently, I don't know. Yeah. It, it's funny. It's funny. But then you, there's also this thing of like, there's this thing of like, there's not really trends in the same way anymore. Like, you know, even when I was starting to starting to write at High Snobiety, it was like, I remember it was just after Kanye had done the Red October, Easy 2, which is that all red, bright, bright, bright red um, shoe. And it just suddenly became this thing where like a bright red shoe was everywhere. You just saw them everywhere. And everyone was wearing head to toe black. Neoprene was huge. Like shredded jeans were really huge. Chelsea boots started becoming a thing. Everyone wanted like a skinny leather jacket. Um, you know, that was just like a really a look, and it was a really huge, all-encompassing trend. And I know the whole outdoor thing has been having a moment, and you know there are things that do have moments now, but it's not it's not the same kind of intensity as it was. It feels like there's just always something new and unusual kind of like bubbling away as opposed to there being this thing where it's like, if you're, if you're not in on this, you're on the outside, which is definitely what it was. What's the deal with celebrities and sneakers? So like Kanye or Travis Scott, where, I mean, Kanye seems to me like a bit of a spent force. Is he really such a huge celebrity still that he can sell sneakers? Yeah. I mean, they, I think he, you know, he gets hundreds of millions a year just on a royalty from, the shoes he does with Adidas. So yeah, he's, he's definitely selling sneakers. Um, yeah, I, I think honestly, some of these people are just so huge at this point, that um, they're almost like Titanic kind of too big to, too big to fail kind of size. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how much insanity can really, you know, get in the way of that. Um, I don't know. I'm not a pop culture pop commentator, but um, yeah, I mean, sneakers are still huge. Sneakers feel like, you know, it's something bigger than a trend. It's um, it's really like a generational thing um, in the same way that, I don't know, maybe records was for a generation or maybe T-shirts was for a generation. Um, you know, it's really, it's yeah, it's, it's not even a trend. It's something bigger than a trend. Um, I have wondered if a lot of the, the sneaker reseller types have moved over to crypto since... They definitely could have. It, I feel like there's a very strong um, Venn diagram between the two, that's for sure. Um, I, w- I was never into either of them, but um, I would imagine there's a lot of crossover. Yeah. Um, if we can look back a bit to uh, the supply chain and the details of what goes into making a garment. Um, because when you're standing there in the shop with your T-shirt in a plastic bag and it says made in the USA or whatever, can you talk a bit about what has actually happened up until that point? Yeah, so so making clothes is a really long, complicated process. And actually what happens is that the, the name that you see, the country that you see in the label 
is really just the last step of a very, very long process. So if you have something that's made in Italy, for example, to take the example of a T-shirt, you could have cotton that's grown in Uzbekistan, spun in Pakistan, woven in Bangladesh, dyed in India, cut and sewn in Morocco, and then finished in, you know, printed and labeled in Italy. And because those those last steps happen, that means it's quote-unquote made in Italy. Um, and yeah, that's just another another way, another one of these kind of big illusions in the industry where you think that well, just because this is made in country X, that means it's more sustainable or it means that people have been better paid or it means that the quality is better when really the, you know, the industry is so complicated and so globalized that you, it's, there's no simple answers at all. And all this back and forth, is this where all the carbon emissions come from? No, no the, the main source of carbon emissions is making fabric. That's, that's the biggest... Um, you know, turning, turning, you know, fluffy, greasy, oily kind of cotton, um, which looks, I guess, a bit like um, a bit like candy floss, turning that into the sort of flat, perfectly dyed jersey that you can turn into a t-shirt. That's that's the biggest, um, that's the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the fashion industry. Unless you're talking about leather, which is its own, you know, its own thing. But if we're talking about conventional garments that you can, that, you know, that are made of fabric. Then, um, then it's making those fabrics that's the biggest source of emissions. I guess when the big companies say that they can't actually provide full transparency or mm. traceability on what they're making, it is because, well, it's so massively complicated, and also it won't do them any favors. Yeah, exactly. A lot of it, a lot of it, you know, it is really complicated, but it's, it's very doable. You know, there's a lot of small brands that are very easily able to trace their supply chains quite far back. A lot of the time with the really big brands, they don't want to because when they know about stuff that's happening, then they're kind of legally liable. You know, if you think about the, um, you know, the forced labor um, from Uyghur cotton in um, in northwest China, like it's good that brand, it's good for all the massive brands at the top of the industry to not be able to see that far back into their supply chain because suddenly you then have like, oh, wait, so you, this brand gets this amount of cotton from forced labor and this brand doesn't you know it's it's um a lot of it's like kind of ignorance is bliss um which you know it, it just shows you just how kind of systematically kind of broken the fashion industry is and it always come people always ask me like oh is this brand sustainable or is this brand sustainable or you know which shoe is more sustainable or like what do you think of this new you know collection or whatever like it's the, the fashion industry itself is unsustainable and that's the reason that um again that's the, the big reason that the message of my book is just buy less stuff because um you, mm. you do, as consumers we, we can't make an educated decision there's not even the brands themselves don't even know where all their clothes come from the brands themselves don't even know the true impact of the materials they're using you know right now there's a huge outcry over there's basically a um, an organisation called the Sustainable Apparel Coalition, which created a um, a methodology called HIG, H-I-G-G, and that was basically supposed to be like the standardised way of measuring the impact of different materials in the fashion industry. And right now, HIG is being like dragged through through the gutter because it turns out that all of the numbers aren't really accurate, and that for you know ten years or so, the HIG, HIG has been based on really 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 rough shaky numbers 
And those are the numbers that the fashion industry has been using to say, like, okay, this is how much carbon this uses, or this is how much water this uses, when really it's all the numbers are um, a lot don't, aren't really reliable. And, um, you know, consumers aren't able to make an educated choice. I, I can't tell you, you know, I'm, you know, people look to me as a, to, as a sustainability kind of authority, and I can't tell you which brand's more sustainable out of any of those huge and huge ones at the top. I can't tell you buy Nikes and not Adidas. I can't tell you go to H&M or Zara. You know, it's, I, I don't have, it's impossible to know that information. I mean, that is also important to, to get out there. But uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of the time you'll be influenced by whoever has the, the best collaborations, the best campaign, the, the biggest yeah. flowery words. You know, the, you know, like unlike something like tech where, you know, someone like Apple needs to have a really great relationship with its suppliers because its suppliers are going to make or break its products. You know, like Apple needs to have the best supply chain in order to be able to um, produce the best tech products, right? Like that, that's kind of how it all works. And so, you know, I, I just saw someone explaining, breaking down the, the components in the latest iPhone, and there's like a huge amount of recycled materials in, in the latest iPhone. Um, and that's because Apple... Apple's competitive advantage comes from its relationship to its supply chain. If you're a fashion brand, your competitive advantage comes from being a better marketer. You don't need to have, you know, the difference between brand X and brand Y, they all have the same supply chain. Like, what's, what's the difference in terms of supply chain between um, Balenciaga and Gucci? Almost nothing. They still make stuff out of cotton, out of leather, out of silk, out of wool. It's all the same kind of stuff. It just looks completely different and it's marketed completely different. And the competitive advantage comes from the marketing, not from the supply chain, which is why brands don't see the need in investing in them. They don't see the need in making them more sustainable because they don't own the supply chains themselves. They can just go to a different supplier if they don't if they don't like what they're getting from another one. They have, there's no there's no incentives for um, for brands to have that good a uh, relationship with their supply chain in the same way because you. It, it's not going to make or break your product in the same way as it would for something like tech or cars or, um, you know, consumer electronics. Yeah, I guess uh, Dr. Martens is a, is a good example where when they took their production offshore and basically make in random factories in Asia mm-hmm. who have no history in making their product and know how to make it well, their product has also gone massively downhill mm-hmm. ever since. Yeah. Their brand name is still so strong and there's so many people who remember it from their childhood and they had pairs that lasted for years and years that people keep buying them. You know, it, it's it's so funny just how quickly quality can change. Like I had a pair of DMs in I think 2016 and they lasted me for years. Like I, every single fashion week I went to, the first time I went to Japan, the first time I went to Korea, every holiday I went on, it was literally I just had my pair of dogs and, that, and they honestly lasted for two years. And I remember getting to the end of it being like what what else what else can i throw at these for them to like stop going it was insane it was just like every single thing i did they just kept going and this was four or five years ago well six years ago now and you know you buy i remember the pair that i bought afterwards it was like oh six months later it's like i can really start to feel that these aren't supporting my feet in the same way that they used to you had an interesting example in the book and i remember it from when it hit the newspapers about Italian shoes not being made in Italy. That was also a blurry supply chain uh, issue. Can you mention that? Yeah, I mean, they're made in Romania. 
the maiden Romania, and then the and then the soul gets put on put on put on in uh, in Italy. That was according to the the, the report that um, the Guardian did. Um, you know, there's that's how it all works, especially with made in Italy. Like, there's so much prestige to the idea of something being made in Italy when that you know you can really. Um, you can really add a premium onto a product by it being made in Italy. And, you know, so there's a huge incentive for that made in Italy, like label to be there. But at the same time, the way that the law around that works, it's very easy to, um, you know, make some, make most of something somewhere else, bring it into Italy and do the last steps of the supply chain um, in Italy. And then, you know, be able to claim that something's made in Italy. And then people think that there's like a, there's like a little workshop of, little old ladies that are like hand stitching your product when really it's made in the same factories as everything else because mm. that's again down to brands not actually owning their factories any longer yeah. just outsourcing production here and there exactly. to whoever makes it well enough at a good enough price I guess so your change of heart and your way forward buying less yeah it's a pain in the arse <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a pain in the ass. It takes forever. Um, yeah, it's, um, you know, I'm kind of, like, my, my wardrobe's in a bit of a weird kind of state right now in that, like, I'm, I say this in the book as well, that, like, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely still getting rid of stuff that I picked up over the years from my time at High Society. Like, I was just gifted so much stuff, and I I was such a bad consumer. Like, I... I've just made so many regret purchases that like I, I'm still getting rid of stuff. You know, even now I'm still getting rid of stuff that I picked up over the years. Um, you know, it's, especially for me, it's like I'm six foot five. So fit, it, fit can be quite difficult, especially for shoes and trousers. And, you know, I have very specific tastes and, you know, it's, it's really not, it's, it's a slow process. But then once you get something that works, it's literally like, you know, when I can wear the biker boots that I love wearing, it's like my day. My day is literally better when I get to wear them. Um, you know, if I can wear anything with a Cuban heel on it, it feels like the day can't get that bad. <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> so this is ha- happiness through wearing. Yeah, yeah. It, it's like when you find that stuff that's perfect, it like it actually is perfect. You know, it it really, you know, it truly does make you feel better. Um, I guess that's the that's the kind of thing that I've learned over the years of making tons and tons of regret purchases is that when you, when you find something that really works, it's, it's so good. And then you just get better at being able to find something that works for you. I'm curious, have you ever made, ever thought about how those regret purchases happened? Yeah. I mean, this is something that I really, really get into in the book. Um, You know, it's, it's, you make regret purchases most of the time when you're just buying because of marketing, when you're buying because you think you should be buying or you're buying because you're anxious and you want to, you know, alleviate some difficult feelings or you're buying because you liked how it looked on Instagram or you're buying because, you know, there's, there's so many reasons that people kind of sleepwalk into purchases that they don't really, they don't really need and they don't really want. And, um, it can just become a habit, you know, it becomes like, like eating or working out or like caffeine, you know, it's just something that you do. Um, and, you know, I know from my life that if I, whenever I made a purchase like that, it always, it never went out. It never came, it, it never turned out well. 
I quite frequently experience buyer's remorse the moment I've clicked buy online. So it hasn't even been wrapped or sent or arrived mm. yet. But I'm already sort of, oh, yeah, not too sure about that. Um, yeah, I, def- I definitely, I'm trying to think what's the, you know, there's a lot of stuff I've bought recently where the fit wasn't quite right. You know, it, it, I find it quite hard to find a tank top that I really like. So, I, you know, I bought some tank tops the other day and I'm like, no, this isn't quite right. So I'm returning those. Um, it, for me, it mainly comes down to fit. Um, I don't. I'm trying to think. You know, there's some shirts that I bought in 2020 that um, I don't really like anymore. And I think I, I was just at this phase of like still coming out of this kind of overindulgent um, consumerist kind of hangover from high snobiety that I basically thought that I should only wear like quote unquote kind of classic things. And then I ended up just like buying a bunch of boring stuff that I didn't really like. Um so, you know, that's, you know, two and a half years ago we're talking now. So, um, you know, I still have some of that. But um, I don't know, like, you know, those biker boots that I bought, like, I'm I, I'm literally obsessed with them and they need to get resold right now. And I'm really not happy about the fact that for, like, two weeks I'm not going to be able to wear them. Like, that's, I'm really bummed about that. Um, um, yeah, I got a couple of really slouchy long sleeves from Our Legacy. Um, they do a lot of this really kind of yeah drapey slouchy kind of grungy looking kind of stuff Um, and every time I wear them I feel great I feel so good Um, and I only bought them uh, you know this year and um, they're already like yeah they're already my favourite some of my favourite things in my wardrobe Um, I I find a lot of the time like the 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 stuff I buy it's, it's either in two categories of, you know, the first one being like, I want this one specific thing and I'm going to spend a very long time finding the perfect one. So the biker boots example, like I probably ordered maybe like four different pairs online and the fit, you know, I'm going to assume that you're into um, proper welted shoes as well. Like as, as you know, the fit is like, it's like, it's like rocket science or something trying to find a proper boot that fits you that fits you exactly how it should. So I, um, you know, I literally bought four different pairs of harness boots, and um, I returned each one that wasn't quite right. And then when I finally found the perfect one, it's just like perfect. So there's a lot of purchases I make where it's like that. You know, right now I'm looking to try and find like the perfect all black cowboy boot, which is actually proving really really difficult. Um, and you know, I, I bought one pair the other day and then sent them back because they weren't quite, the fit wasn't quite right. Um, and then recently I, I'm, I've hopefully found the plain black denim trucker jacket of my dreams, which is bit, which has also been, you know, I've wanted one of those for like five years now. And it's taken me that long to find one that looked like the perfect one. Um, so fingers crossed the fit's good and it works out. But, um, I make a lot of purchases like that where it's like I have this thing in my head that I want and I'm very willing to like wait a very long time and do a lot of trial and error to get it right. Or then I have stuff where it's like I just tried it on in the shop and it was really fun and it made me feel really good so I bought it. So like those Our Legacy tops is a really good example where like I I never really thought that I wanted like slouchy kind of um, grungy um, 
you know, drapey kind of stuff, but I just tried it on when I was in the shop and I was like, I feel really good in this, so I'm just going to buy it. Um, yeah, so I guess it's, it's, it's those two categories. You know, it's like the, you know, I think of everything in an investment piece. Um, I think of everything as something that I really want to be wearing years down the line, but it's like either things that I'm really searching for or something that I'm really pleasantly surprised by. Very interested in listening to you talk about this because it's so parallel to an evolution I've gone through as well, uh, whereby first pretty much buying anything that seemed shiny and then over time uh, getting into the research, the hunt, the looking for the perfect piece. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and I don't know if I've actually sort of been buying less, but there's just more of a process uh, say pre-purchase process before actually buying something. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm still making quite a lot of purchases right now. Um, just most of them get returned, um, which I know is is really not a perfect solution. I know, you know, this is a whole other issue. Is like the the logistics of returns. There's a lot of waste that happens there, and. Um, I'm not going to pretend that buying a bunch of stuff and returning it is like a guilt-free way of shopping because it definitely has its pitfalls as well. But like Berlin doesn't have that many shops in it, actually. So it's, you can be quite limited with what you can find here, especially when it comes to shoes. Um, or shoes that I'm into anyway. Um, so, yeah, but the, the stuff I actually keep and wear, it's, it's definitely smaller. It's definitely, um, I have a pretty small wardrobe. There's not much stuff in it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because you mentioned the fact that you buy a lot online instead of in physical shops. I noticed when I was in England this summer and I visited a couple of really, really nice shops, how much harder it was to buy something when you were actually there and you'd go over to a rack, you'd feel something, look at it. If it looked nice, you might try it on. There were so many hurdles in the way of actually buying something. Whereas looking online, you look at the photos, you read the description, okay. Right. The sort of crit- critical aspect of it was so much less. And I think if everyone just stopped buying online and went to shops, they might buy a hell of a lot less. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it, it's a double-edged sword, that, just because, you know, for me, fit is like, just like really, really important. It's really difficult for me to find a pair of trousers that fit me. Um and, you know, a lot of the time, you know, knitwear, for example, never fits the way that I want it to fit, or it very rarely fits the way that I want it to fit. Um, so if I had to do that, I would end up buying basically nothing, especially in Berlin, where, like, honestly, there's not that much um, retail where I feel like I can go somewhere and be like, okay, I'm buying this, um, you know, for the risk of selling like a broken record that our legacy store is obviously a regular place that I stop off at. Um, I love Vu as well. They always have a really cool curation, but um, apart from that, it's, it, it can be slim picking depending on what you're into. It's, it's pretty sad to hear how, how you're not finding anything in Berlin when so many people travel to Berlin for the specific purpose of the excellent shopping there. Or maybe that yeah. has changed. I mean, it's, <laughs> It's, it's definitely nothing compared to Paris or London or um, or New York or um, you know even Milan. You know the the amount of shopping there. It, it's a lot. Um, it's kind of different. Um, you you do get shopping tourists here, but it's never quite never quite the same. You think it's realistic to ask people 
to buy less? If once, I mean, how do you get them out of that consumer mindset? I mean, you know, the message I keep coming back to in the book is that buying less is an opportunity to buy better. So, like, the thing with researching and the thing with, you know, making all these intentional purchases is, like, yeah, it is less and it's slower and it can be a pain in the ass, but, like, when it's good, it's so good. It's, it's like the the rewards are just so much... They take their time to reveal themselves, I guess, but the rewards are so much realer when it's something that that really, really works for you and that you really, truly love. I think that's a, a realisation that comes with, say, experience and age. Yeah, for uh, sure. Which might not be as applicable to 17-year-old Jenny mm. doing her she in halls on YouTube. I mean, I, you know, a big thing for my generation... Um, you know, I don't know. About, I don't know what it was like for you when you were younger, but like, I only remember fast fashion. It was it was fast fashion, or it was stuff in skate shops, and or it was like band merch. You know, that there there wasn't that much stuff for me to wear, so I, I couldn't. The sort of possibilities of being able. I mean, also the money as well. I didn't have I didn't have much money when I was a kid, but like, you know, the, the possibilities just weren't there. Um, and then I think you can kind of get a bit. I definitely got a bit carried away when I suddenly, you know, menswear had this huge explosion and retail, you know, I suddenly opened my eyes to all these, all these retailers, especially in London or, um, you know, when I was traveling with work, it's like, you, I just saw so many things. I tended to think like, I like this, so I'm going to buy it. And especially when, you know, I was, work, I was working full time, I was living in Berlin, so my expenses weren't that high, so I had disposable income to so just like, yeah, if I wanted to drop a couple of hundred euros on something, I could just do it without having to worry about it. Um, and yeah, I definitely just ended up with a bunch of stuff that I bought just because, you know, like you said, it was shiny and nice in the shop. I just never thought anything more than that. So the style and aesthetic you're cultivating right now, you see that as something that will last for decades to come? I mean, I hope so. Like, I'm... I've always been into, I always thought tailoring was really cool. I mean, depending on how you wear it, like I always thought the way that someone like Nick Cave wore tailoring was super cool. Um, I've always been into boots, um, black boots, um, sometimes other colors, but mainly black. Um, you know, I've always been into just like cool graphic tees, especially when they're black. Um, I've always been into stuff that feels a little kind of beaten up and a little not perfect um so you know the the things that feel very um come pretty naturally to me like i don't you know i've I've, um i've worn you know i've had different ones over the years but um i've worn i've worn leather blazers so much in the last i don't know five or six years that like like quite a few friends that say when they see a leather blazer they just automatically think of me so yeah, I guess you know it feels real to me now, and it feels just like stuff that somewhat the stuff that someone else is into. It just it would wouldn't feel like it wouldn't be me, you know, like a like a red wing boot, for example, or like um, I don't know um, sneakers. Just you know sneakers as a, as a whole, or this whole outdoor thing that's really that's really hyped right now, like these Arc'teryx jackets that everybody's into. Like they mean nothing to me. They it's just they might as well not exist. I, I'm not even slightly tempted by them. It's an interesting idea, though, sort of how taste might evolve or stay the same. 
and mm. what influences us. I remember a couple of years ago, I suddenly had this hankering for a pair of trousers in Prince of Wales checks. No idea where I got it from. But before I could find a pair, I noticed there were so many people around me wearing them. Mm. So something must have influenced me, and I had this <laughs> craving for them, which is weird because I don't have that craving now. So it's a fleeting thing. Yeah, I guess, I mean, I was definitely more into Hounds too. Um, you know, the problem for me with a lot of that Prince of Wales check stuff or the Houndstooth stuff is that like the cut, it's always just very like a workwear thing or like a, you know, quote unquote proper menswear kind of thing. Like I would really like a sort of quite classic suit in Houndstooth would probably be really cool, but um, I don't think anybody really makes that. Um, yeah, I I don't know. It's just... I think it com- it comes down to like you have quite you have to have quite a lot of confidence to be able to say no to something that everybody else is doing, and you know, talk to anybody that like gave up drinking, like that's you know it, you have to have a lot of confidence to be able to kind of give that up when everybody around you is doing it, and um, I think it's the same with trends and the same with hype is like you you have to have quite a lot of self-awareness and self-confidence and self-knowledge to be able to be like, yeah, this isn't for me. I'm not going to do it, I guess. Um, yeah, but like this whole giving stuff up thing, you know, this different perspective on clothes has been really good for my confidence as well. Cause it's like, Oh, you just realized that, you know, I, I always knew that most of the music and art out there wasn't really for me. Um, I always knew that. And then just sort of reminding myself of the same applied for clothes, that like it was the same. Most of what's out there doesn't mean anything to me. And that was quite a, it's quite an empowering thing actually, because it means when, you know, the things that you are into are really, are really powerful to you and they really mean something. Yeah, that's good. We didn't mention at the start the name of the book. I, th- I think you should talk a bit about that. Yeah, um, so it's called The World is on Fire, but we're still buying shoes because it is and we are um yeah it just i don't know like a lot of it was just being quite realistic about how things work online and i knew that if i wanted to i knew that i was going to do a book it had to be something that was really shareable and it had to be something that was gonna engage uh with people through their screens and something that people could kind of quite instantly understand what it was about which is also the reason I kept it short and the reason that there's all of these diagrams and the reason that there's those big giant quotes is the whole thing was really about you know it needs to make sense online as well in my opinion like it needs to be something that people could quite easily engage with Um, just because you know working at High Stambiety for such a long time it was like the people that know best how to how to translate their work online are the ones that are most successful, basically. And so I just applied that principle to my book when it came to doing it. There you go. Anything we should mention in closing? Um, no. I mean... Buy the book? Yeah, buy the book from <laughs> alexleach.com. It's, um, I self-published it. Um, so, you know... Conventional book deals are a scam, basically. Um, the author gets like, I spoke to a guy the other day who published a book with HarperCollins Germany, and he told me he gets like 
I can't remember exactly how much it was, but it was like one euro eighteen or something for each book that that was sold. And um, you know, because I've self-published it, like I do, I get like actual meaningful money from each book that gets sold. Um, so you know, you unlike most um, unlike most book deals, like you are truly supporting me as an author by buying it. That's uh, good information. Yeah, and like I said, you can get it from alecleach.com. I'll add the link in your show notes. Yeah, great. Thanks a lot for, for talking to me today. It was a joy. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. And bye-bye uh, for now. Yeah. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.